Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, doomed to eternal torment as my downstairs neighbors continue to saw at whatever they're sawing on. Don't they know I have a very professional recording studio up here? <laughs> huh? Don't they? I think you should go let them know. I will. They're interfering with art. That's right. Yeah, not our art, the art of Vasily Grossman, but... Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, this isn't art. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is covering art. Anyway, I'm Cameron Lalana, and um, I'm I'm on the go. I'm Mister on the go this week. I've been traveling a lot in the last couple of weeks, uh, and so as a, as a side note, Stalingrad definitely the book number one uh, of our podcast being read in the most number of weird places from uh, on the road, rural California, on the BART in the in San Francisco, in a hospital, just everywhere. So across multiple counties, I went to Nevada. I should have brought this to Nevada. It could have been a multi-state book, but it could have been. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we continue on the road to becoming a completely socialist realist podcast while we continue our series on Vasily Grossman's Stalingrad. We did part one last week, part two this week, and it's going to be a 10-parter, so... You know, you calculate how many episodes that is. It's a lot. <laughs> it's gonna be a lot, and we're really excited to get into it. I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of research on JSTOR, and every time I like read an article, I see three more I want to read. So, got a lot of information to bring in. It's like the grad, the grad student cycle, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we get into talking about part two today, Matt, I gotta ask you, what are you drinking? I am drinking a little something, something Ooh, from. Okay. When I was down on vacation, I am drinking a First Street Wheat, which is a beer Ooh. by Tin Mill Brewing Company down in Herman, Missouri. Okay. Absolutely tiny town. It's where me and Cameron want to get a billboard yeah. for the podcast because <laughs> rural Missouri billboards don't cost anything. And we thought it would be really funny mm -hmm. yes. to have a giant tipsy Tolstoy billboard. And that is the main reason to do something. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. We said we wanted pat patron support because... We were gonna, you know, do more episodes and hire an editor, and we'll we'll get to that. But first, wouldn't it be funny if we <laughs> bought the billboard in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's. What... <laughs> I think that'd be a really good use of the money. Yeah, it would. But yeah. what are you drinking this weekend? Well, Matt, uh, where I am sitting, it is 10 a.m. on a Wednesday, so obviously it's heck yeah, brother. Too early to drink uh, beer, so I've got an espresso martini, <laughs> uh, and uh, which I deem. Just chaotic, bougie energy. <laughs> well, what else are you going to drink? I need caffeine. I need alcohol. So this... Well, I don't need mm -hmm. alcohol. I need it for the show. That was a bad sentence. I, I need caffeine. And in also my... for fulfilling the addiction. <laughs> yeah, I do need to, <laughs> to keep the shakes from affecting the microphone. But mm -hmm. yeah, I've got, mm -hmm. I've got a double pour of mm -hmm. uh, an espresso martini. So we're going to see where that takes us. Good, good. <laughs> well, speaking of people helping us buy billboards and or editors, one of the two, we'll see. Maybe an editor, definitely a billboard. Uh, but we'd like to give a quick shout out to our newest patrons, Sharon, Blake, and Haley. Thank you all so much for uh, joining or subscribing or becoming a patron. I guess that's the last, that's the technical term for it. Anyway, thank you all. It's super helpful. Uh, and, and actually, it will be going towards an editor. So we can go to that three month, which uh, now that we've reached that goal, uh, starting with this episode, actually, we will be releasing three times a month, uh, the first three weeks of each month. So look forward to that. Uh, we're excited to uh, to get to really get our nose to the grindstone on this one, but let's get into Stalingrad. Okay, so the context for today is going to be talking about Vasily Grossman. 
This week we'll be talking about his life uh, from birth up until World War II, and in next week we'll be talking about uh, his life from World War II to the end of his life. Before we talk about Grossman, though, I want to bring up this week's book recommendation about World War II, uh, which is going to shift our perspective away from the European theater over to the Pacific War. And we're going to be talking about John W. Dower's War Without Mercy, Race and Power in the Pacific War. Um, so this is a book which more or less covers the history of the... Uh, the way that Japan and the United States saw each other, drawing on songs, slogans, cartoons, propaganda films, interviews, documents to talk about the perception that was had of each other. Not only the perception, uh, but also the ways that realized itself in the real world. And the reason why I want to recommend this is because I think it's really important to look at the human dynamics of conflicts, and especially in the Pacific War, because I think all too often we have this, if you're familiar with the Pacific War at all, this kind of simplistic idea that uh, the heroic Americans came in and fought off the awful Japanese committing war crimes up and down. And, you know, don't get me wrong, the Japanese, the Imperial Japanese military was committing a lot of war crimes. Like, I'm half Filipino and my grandparents grew up during the occupied Philippines. So when I was a kid, uh, my bedtime stories for my grandfather were my grandmother's village being burned down and her having to watch it while she was like hiding in a boat out on uh, you know, in the nearby lake or the sea just to avoid being killed in that or family members being dragged to death or almost to death. And it was not, I, I didn't have like, I, I had a lot of, I, I had a lot of nightmares as a kid, as a kid is guess, I guess what I'm trying to say. But of course that extends to uh, extensive Japanese war crimes in, in China and in Korea, many of which to today are not, uh, are not acknowledged by the Japanese government. But all the same, I worry sometimes that there's this there's this kind of racist trope you'll see in geopolitics or history where uh, there's this idea of, you know, quote unquote, Oriental or Asiatic despotism or barbarity, which is somehow unknown to the white Western world. Um, you know, you, you might think that that's a dead trope, but I've seen it as recently as God within like the last two weeks. I, I honestly don't remember the context, but talking about European politics and this commentator who was in some organization kind of marveled that the sort of like Asiatic barbarity could be seen in Europe. So it's something you, you still see used, um, the, this trope. And the reason why I think it's important to bring in this more nuanced perspective about how these attitudes are either created or uh, extant attitudes are utilized by propagandists, um, especially in times of war, to frankly make anything permissible is important because although the Imperial Japanese military did horrible, horrible stuff, like I won't say it's comparable to anything the United States did. Well, okay. Mm, that gets into a more nuanced discussion of the usage of firebombing civilians in Japan and the atomic bombings, but that's a different moral conversation. Um, but just talking about like just daily interactions between people, which were really brutal on all sides, right? In the Pacific War, Edgar J. Jones, who is a war correspondent and a veteran writing in the Atlantic Monthly in 1946, would write, What kind of war did civilians suppose we fought anyway? We shot prisoners in cold blood. 
wiped out hospitals, strafed lifeboats, killed or mistreated enemy civilians, finished off the enemy wounded, tossed the dying into a hole with the dead, and in the Pacific boiled the flesh off enemy skulls to make table ornaments for sweethearts, or carved their bones into letter openers. As victors, we are privileged to try our defeated opponents for their crimes against humanity, but we should be realistic enough to appreciate that if we were on trial for breaking international laws, we should be found guilty on a dozen counts. We fought a dishonorable war because morality has a low priority in battle. The tougher the fighting, the less room for decency. And in Pacific contests, we saw mankind reach the blackest depths of bestiality. I rig this up not to create a sort of moral equivalence between the US and Japan in the war. Like I said, I obviously have a, kind of a bias because of family history in that regard. Uh, but it's important to examine these dynamics, especially ones that are kind of glossed over in a more uh, heroicized version of of what happened looking back on it, uh, which often will overlook unsavory elements, the American internment of Japanese people in the, the US and its, and its legacy, but the way that that was unevenly applied and the way that Japanese Americans were interned and lost much of their livelihood, where at the same time that was not applied to German or Italian Americans. And I don't mean to this to imply that this should have been applied, uh, applied to Italian or German Americans, but it's, you know, you do, you don't see the same calls for uh, for that. And it's it's worthwhile engaging with because, I mean, even as recently as the last presidential administration in the U.S., uh, I recall a talking head for the administration saying that the concentration camps for Japanese, for Japanese Americans during World War II should be put back into use um, as a place to imprison undocumented peoples in the U.S. So um, although it's a history which seems long dead, it's so, I mean, the camps are still there and there are still people who think that they should be used, which is why I think it's important to look at how we look at questions of, as Dower puts it, questions of race and power, in this case in the Pacific Theater. Excellent read if you got the time. It's like 400 something pages, so it's a bit of a longer one, but it's, I think I read it in probably just a couple days. Um, so it's, I think it's well worth the time. Okay, let's talk about Vasily Grossman. So Vasily Grossman was born in 1905 to Semyon Osipovich Yekaterina Sevalievna in the town of Berdichev. Berdichev is a part, Berdichev was part of the so-called Pale of Permanent Jewish Settlement, uh, which was an area from 1835 until 1917 when the Soviets ended that practice. Uh, Jews were not allowed to leave this area without special permission, and that special permission oftentimes was only available to the rich and powerful, although Grossman's family were some of the ones who were able to get around this limitation. Although this fact was hidden during the Soviet era, he came from a fairly wealthy family. Um, his parents had international educations, uh, were multilingual, they met in Italy. His mother at that point, Yekaterina, had already been, was, was already married, but uh, left her husband to marry uh, Semyon. Although their relationship would not last, uh, Grossman would always maintain a close relationship with his father. Uh, well, frankly, he maintained a good relationship with both parents, although his mother would be the one who raised him because his father would go far east to uh, continue his, his, his work. Uh, it should be noted that Grossman's father uh, was politically active and was a member of the, the Russian Social Democratic Party and would become a Menshevik after the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and luckily for him uh, did not meet the fate of many other Mensheviks. Grossman himself uh, was raised by his mother, who was really insistent about certain things. Uh, for example, teaching, taking him to Geneva in Switzerland for, I think, a year uh, or maybe two years to make sure that he would fluency in French. Um, by the time that he's seven in 1914, they moved to Kiev uh, for, for schooling. Now, Grossman and his mother would stay there through World War I um, and up until 1918, uh, which his mother referred to as the horrible year when they lived uh, with uh, her sister uh, because their apartment had been bombed. 
Um, in, in the ensuing civil war, it was a rough time to be, well, anywhere really, but uh, in Kiev, um, there were 14 changes of power, uh, all sides committing atrocities when they came in. And Dejdeman Lostam would describe these horrible times as uh, writing, Blood flowed in every street, outside every home. Bullet-ridden corpses lying on the roads and on the pavements were a familiar sight to us all. But more than the bullets, we feared the indignities and tortures that could be inflicted before death. So Grossman would continue on his education, working after the war, and eventually returning to Kiev after time outside in a later labor school, studying STEM subjects. Um, at this time, he would meet Anna Matsyuk, who would later go on to marry, although their relationship by that time was short-lived, because Grossman would be accepted into the Department of Chemistry in, in, in the Moscow University. Uh, and in the following year, Grossman went to Moscow to study uh, and became completely enmeshed in the, uh, in the, the intellectual life. Uh, you have to understand in 1923, 1924, uh, although Lenin was already dead, uh, the era of Stalin was still fairly far off, relatively speaking. So all the policies being put into place by government, these, these socialist ideas were being measured for the very first time, and everyone was debating what, what was the right path, uh, debating with pleasure or excitement, as Varlam Shalamov notes. He calls it a boiling cauldron of debate. But at the same time, although, you know, the implement, the socialist society is attempting to be implemented, uh, you're still kind of in a sort of capitalist society. You remember in 1921, uh, Lenin had introduced the new economic policy, which reintroduced elements of, of what, what we'd understand to be capitalist manufacturing because of the drastic drop in industrial output, uh, which is attributable to a lot of re reasons. But of course, you can understand why a country coming back of a civil war uh, is having some problems with the industrial output. So when Grossman's a student here, he actually is having a real tough time. He couldn't even afford rent, actually. And so he slept on the floors of his friend's apartments. Uh, and it was this perennial homelessness, which although he kept a humorous bent to it when explaining it to his father, uh, would weigh on him. He wrote in later, well, in later years, in 1928, a few years after this, you know, at dusk, I experienced what our savage ancestor in the forest in the Stone Age experienced. Having to look for shelter, I'm seized with anxiety. The ancestor was better off. He would climb a tree or crawl into a cave or a crevice. My situation in the primeval forest of the big city is worse. All cracks and caves are occupied, and I have to negotiate. Would you let me in for the night? Years into his education at this point, he's not losing his passion from sci for sciences, but he is growing more distant from it, and he's growing a passion for social issues. Uh, and luckily for him, his cousin, Nadia Almaz, who is about eight years his senior but was raised in Berdachev as well, is the personal secretary and advisor to the head of the Trade Union International at that time, and she's able to secure him uh, journalistic jobs, uh, including after a two-month stay in Uzbekistan, publishing in Pravda, which is one of the biggest um, papers in, in the Soviet Union at this time. Around the same time in 1928, Grossman also gets married to Anna Matsyuk, as mentioned earlier, who his parents were not super big on. Anna was still in, in Kiev at this time while Grossman's in Moscow, and Moscow and Grossman now growing distant from his friends uh, and in his sixth year of university. He was really alone, and he, he begins to think about questions of life and death and getting really into Tolstoy. <laughs> Like really into Tolstoy. Um, so he, after finishing his practicum, he moves to, back to Kiev and sells him with Galia, who is pregnant, uh, and begins to work. And in 1930, uh, Hannah uh, gives birth to their daughter, Katya, but they would only be together for about seven months before Grossman would leave uh, to work at the Donbass, which is where he worked as a chemist in a gas laboratory. And he was not taken seriously here, although 
although his job was to save lives and he looked upon the their toil as heroic, he was looked on as almost kind of a, an annoyance by the miners there. And it was these experiences that he would turn into some short stories, including Phosphorus, and would also use it as the basis for one of his later books, Stepan Kolchugin. After about a year there, in this intensely lonely time, he begins to develop TB, and his father steps in and arranges for his, for his son's transfer to uh, a, an institute of pathology and occupational hygiene in Donetsk. The first thing that struck him there was was well, boredom about his work. Um, at the same time, it should be noted that Grossman would witness firsthand the effects of the Holomador, uh, the Holomador being the um, massive famine that took place in Soviet Ukraine due to the um, consequences of collectivization in the region, which would lead to the deaths of some number of millions of, of Ukrainian people there. Uh, around the same time, Grisman's relationship with his wife is kind of falling apart. In 1932, Hana uh, and him would divorce, and he would begin to write more about his year at Smolyanka 11 in, in uh, the Donbass region. And, uh, well, I'll read I'll read um, Popov's quote in full here, although it's rather long, uh, because this is, uh, well, as, as uh, Matt mentioned in the last episode, this interaction between the two would be something that's actually relevant in Stalingrad, which we're reading now. After reading Grossman's work, Gorky would write back. Gorky, of course, was a proponent of socialist realism, which embellished reality. Naturalism was the trait of photographers, he explained in the same letter. This method could not be applied to Soviet reality. Moreover, it distorted Soviet reality. The author says, I wrote the truth. He should have asked himself two questions. First, what sort of truth? And second, why? The dirty truth of the past has died, and a new truth has been born. The author can see well the truth of the past. He truthfully depicted the dull-wittedness of coal miners, their drunkenness, brawls. Of course, all this is truth, but it's a very bad and tormenting truth. Gorky was teaching Grossman the ropes of socialist realism. Grossman should ask himself, why do I write? What kind of truth do I assert? Grossman is a gifted man and should be able to resolve these questions. Gorky's didactic letter was, in fact, an invitation to rewrite and resubmit Glukauf. Grossman would do that just that. Uh, Glukauf being the, the book that Grossman would write in um, after his year at, in, in the Donbass region. When the book finally came out in 1935, uh, it was praised for its accurate depiction of mining and metalworks, um, especially by, which should be noted, uh, one of our podcasts, well, one of Matt's favorites authors, uh, Isaac Babel. So if you're paying attention to the timeline here in 1935, it's about to be not a great time to be uh, in an intellectual position in the Soviet Union. Grossman's cousin, Nadia Almaz, who had secured him many of his earlier jobs, would be, uh, would be arrested and expelled to Astrakhan for three years because of her uh, correspondence with a close political acquaintance of, of uh, Trotsky's. At the same time, Grossman would quit his job at the pencil factory he was working at the time to become a full-time writer, which actually paid him more than his engineering work. He would write more, including the, the short story in the town of Berdichev, which was published the claim of a Babel again, a Bulgakov, uh, and even Gorky was a big fan of this one. Um, Gorky praised the story and invited Grossman to his residence. Uh, Popov writes, Gorky had a great respect for Jewish people and their historic role. Having witnessed a pogrom in Nizhny Novgorod in 1887, Gorky believed in the need to fight anti-Semitism by introducing the Russian reader to Yiddish literature and literature by Russian Jewish writers. Around the same time, Grossman would begin an affair with Olga Mikhailovna Guber, who uh, was married to a friend of his, um, and in the following year, Olga would leave her husband in order to uh, be with Grossman. Again, like I mentioned, in this same era, the writer's community from 1936 onward would begin to be hit pretty hard by the, the purges. Uh, about 2,000 writers being arrested, uh, and only about 500 of them 
returning to public life afterwards. Writers like Mandelstam, who was arrested and sent uh, sent eastward before dying uh, on on the way to the camps. Uh, Isaac Babel, of course, um, was was arrested and would be uh, shot in, I believe, uh, 1940 or maybe 1941. Around this time, Grossman and Olga, Olga, uh, uh, her husband was was arrested and uh, was arrested and shot. Uh, and they had this horrible summer where they were just waiting for their own arrest because, of course, Olga being uh, married to an enemy of the people, well, it's not long before they come for you, too. So after his execution, they wait for their arrest, and in February of 1938, it happens. The police arrive at Grossman's flat on Hurston Street, um, although they seem to be unaware that Olga and her, her ex-husband Guber, Guber were divorced. And Grossman, in just, wow, what a move, uh, argues that they could not proceed with the arrest because they were unaware of that, and he was persuasive enough that they felt the need to consult their supervisor by telephone. Um, of course, the supervisor told him to go ahead with the arrest, uh, which he could not stop, and Grossman immediately moved after that to obtain legal guardianship of Olga's sons uh, to prevent them being sent to an orphanage where enemies of the people, or the children of enemies of the people were sent, which again, notable that he was adopting, you know, children of of one man who'd been shot and one woman who'd been arrested as enemies of people. That's really going out on a limb at this time. And he, in fact, wrote many letters to people to ask for help for Olga, including uh, to the man who was instigating the purge at this time, Yezhov, which is, you know, Grossman would later be interrogated, but was surprisingly not arrested, actually. And even more surprisingly, only a, only about two months, two or three months after Olga was arrested, she was released. Um, this suggests because this is such a rare occurrence especially that this is in 1938 which is the height of of the purges um it suggests that there was help from someone somewhere in the apparatus somewhere probably high up although there is no evidence that points to anyone in particular Rusman's own writing at this time would reflect many of his later approaches to literature which fictionalizes events but also brings a sense of humanity into it uh, in writing the story mama which fictionalized the real events of the yezhov's uh, adopted daughter, daughter natalia who was perhaps, as Popov notes, the only person in the Soviet Union who left the Yezhov, the era of Yezhovshina, with good memories of, of Yezhov. You know, in this era, although Grossman's own family was suffering horribly, his uncle David in Berdachev was arrested and shot. Nadia would be, after her three years of, of exile in Ashrakhan, would be arrested again and would eventually live in ex- internal exile northeast of Moscow. Uh, he's doing he's doing okay. I mean, Olga, although was arrested, was released, which is incredible for that time period. He starts publishing Stepan Kolchugin in installments, um, which is released released to favorable reviews. Things are going relatively well for Grossman, uh, although, of course, the things would change uh, in 1941 when uh, Nazi Germany invades uh, the Soviet Union. And we'll talk more about that next week because I've been talking too long about this already. Uh, But that's broadly Grossman's life up to World War II. Uh, Of course, I've left out a lot of fine details. It's impossible to tell a whole life in just 20 minutes. So again, highly would recommend that you read uh, Alexander Popov's book, uh, Vasily Grossman and the Soviet Century. I believe I mentioned in our last episode, uh, I'll link it again in the show notes in this episode. It's been what I've been using very heavily uh, for research for this episode in, adis- in addition to uh, other writings of Grossman. So would highly recommend it. It's a very well-researched and interesting read too. But yes, that's uh, Vasily Grossman. So let's get into part two of Stalingrad, starting with chapter 19. Please. Yes, yes. I'm dying to hear it. I'm, I'm dying to get into it. So today we'll be covering in part two... Uh, from chapter 19 to chapter 34. 
So last time we left the family with Suryosha, who has just volunteered for a, sort of a youth labor brigade and the family being having some arguments over that. Um, and in the middle of the night, the family is awoken to the sound of cars and alarms and just movement in the city. And they all begin to wonder, hey, are are we the, what's going on? Are we evacuating? What's happening? Marussia's husband, Spiridonov, goes outside and goes to overhear some of the soldiers who are now in the street and comes back in and declares to his family, well, comrades, we are a frontline city, the Southwestern Front. And the, the Southwestern Army has been has retreated into Stalingrad. At this point, a man, an officer named Novikov, shows up a little bit later, knocks on the door, um, and asks to speak with Zhenya. I don't know if we mentioned this, but briefly... Uh, Zhenya, who was previously married to a Communist Party apparatchik uh, named Krimov, while she was married to him, she met an officer named Novikov, and they kind of had like a will-they-won't-day, but over the course of like a single day, and he promises to write her, and they meet once or twice after Zhenya divorces uh, Krimov, and they have this kind of connection, but every time after they have that connection, uh, Novikov has this tendency to disappear. And once again, he walks back into her life and begins to, to chat with her. Um, and of course, it's the middle of the night and almost immediately after arriving, he's almost embarrassed of his presence there. And he tries to leave. But Jenya is like, no, it's the middle of the night. You just stay here. We'll talk in the morning or whatever you want to say. And for now, you go you go stay with Suryoja and um, Suryoja and Spiridona for sharing a room. Also, you already woke everyone up. You can't be like, never mind. <laughs> yeah, it's too late now. <laughs> Once you knock on the door, it's, you know, you got you to commit. You got to commit. Yeah. While Suryoja... Spiridonov and uh, Novikov talk, which is a little bit of a stilted one. Novikov is not super friendly. Uh, Suryoja feels a strange sense of, uh, well, import being there. Uh, Grossman writes, In the presence of this stern son of the war, Suryoja felt puny. Yet he too would soon be a son of the war. Reflecting, of course, that pretty much everyone here is, well, everyone there will be a part of the war once that becomes a siege. But even as it stands... Suryoja is about to join a labor brigade. So uh, throughout, uh, once they, they go to sleep, actually the next morning, Novikov ends up, he, he, they touch hat in the morning, and Novikov leaves and promising that he'll be back in a day or two. Uh, but of course, it's Novikov, so he does not come back in a day or two. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, actually, maybe quite believable for Novikov at this point. Well, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so at this point, we begin to dive more into Novikov's history and him as a person. And Grossman des describes Novikov as such. Others saw Novikov as excessively cerebral, and he was well aware what gave them that impression. He was calm and restrained in argument and meticulous about everyday matters. He got irritated if others infringed on his routines, and he never infringed on these routines himself. He was capable, during an air raid, of reprimanding a cartographer for not sharpening his pencil properly, or of saying to a typist, I asked you to stop using that typewriter that does such faint tease. Uh, so he's very particular, but he is... Uh, an officer who was in high demand because of that. We delve into the first days of the war, or actually starting a few days before the war when Novikov was out far west, uh, and he's hang, hanging around at a town out there. I don't remember if I have the exact name of the town written down here. Got a lot of notes. Uh, but on the days before uh, Nazi Germany invades, there's a strange sense of, there's a strange feeling about the, the whole town. There's a Nazi officer in the town who Novikov notes is has this strange presence. He's almost more like mythological than man, and everyone around him feels that. All the peasants in the town, all the other officers feel wary around this Nazi officer. Um, but Novi Novikov is still going about. He's uh, visiting 
gardens in the area. He's going to various mess halls, asking questions of people. But while he's waiting to, for the reason he actually was, has been called out that far east, uh, in the middle of the night, Germany invades. And we follow through the next couple of chapters the absolute chaos of the first day of Novikov running, of him trying to get to somewhere where he can get orders, of trying to find someone who's in command. Um, we see the first few hours of combat when soldiers are just running and just putting up fights wherever they can. And what is essentially at this point uh, just a losing battle of just how long can they fight before they're pushed back. Um, and, and it's at every point of it is, is, is a desperate fight where essentially the life is measured in minutes. Um, at one point he notes watching some pilots who've just gotten up in the sky and a German, I want to say they're Messerschmitts, but German fighter planes are flying overhead and strafing civilians in the ground. And this one pilot gets up, well, and many others have been shot down even as they're trying to get into the sky. And he is able to sh almost shoot down one plane before another appears behind him to shoot into his plane and send him spiraling out. And Novikov notes, everything in the young man's consciousness, hatred, suffering, the longing to defeat death, Everything in the man's eyes and heart was conveyed to the men down below by the death throes of his plane, which I think more or less conveys the attitude of what's going on. Um, so Novikov escapes. He finds chief of staff. Uh, they're trying to give orders. They're trying to find their battalions. Communications breaking down. Uh, in large throws or in large groups, groups and masses, civilians are just running in every which direction. Uh, there are attempts to evacuate them, but it's not going well, and people are just fleeing. It's absolute chaos, as you might imagine. And Novikov sees, um, as he calls it, the hidden depths of many of the men around him, of men who he once thought to be mediocre, now morphing into hardened, uh, hardened men who just give orders and carry out, and gregarious ones who seem the life of, well, the, of the hero, now suddenly breaking down and seeming lost uh, in the face of this invasion. So we, we carry through with this scene for, for quite a while. Novikov stays on that front fighting for a, quite a long time, and that's from 1941. We follow him a year forward into mid-1942, uh, where the Soviets are, at this point, uh, retreating often. And at this point, they've, they've just lost almost the entirety of uh, the Socialist Republic of Ukraine. And the Southwestern Front HQ has just retreated all the way back into Stalingrad, uh, which is where we kind of joined at the, in Chapter 19. And the front is changing so rapidly that Novikov is finding it difficult, even for his somewhat uh, elevated talents, to keep track of it because there's so many information sources, people saying, we've lost this front, we haven't lost that front. And he's got a map, and every hour almost he's getting new reports and having to change it, and it's almost impossible to tell um, where the real front is, and it's, it's hard for him to give his reports based on that. We jump back into kind of a, a, from the bird's eye view of the war back into an individual view as Novikov is summoned to a briefing uh, with General Timoshenko, who is the general on this front. And at this point, uh, we are really following the mood of the officers as they're trying to deliver the good news they have, even though it's very little um, in Timoshenko, which this chapter is a lot, of, a lot of ways kind of a profile of, of the way he treats his officers, of Timoshenko being someone who is usually pretty hard on his officers, but at this point is almost genial jovial with them because he's got no desire to reprimand men who are already this beaten down by having retreated all the way to the volga uh, at some point uh one of the officers blames a battalion for having pulled back which led to a retreat and timoshenko kind of remarks ah so it was shistakov who made us retreat was it said timoshenko with a smile and here i was thinking that it was the enemy that's a pretty pretty good singer <laughs> it was a very good singer so timoshenko has managed to avoid turning this retreat which has been a massive one into a route which is militarily a victory but the narrator notes that although it was not a route 
the real loss there was not it was not something visible it was not a material thing it was really in the morale of the troops who just feel awful they are many of them have died on this retreat uh it's been it's been painful to come back this far and as they reach the volga uh timoshenko and many of the soldiers thousands of them uh, begin to bathe in there because they've been marching miles and miles for for days and weeks and there the the dust is so thick on their and their feet that it notes that it's like walking on sandpaper and as they bathe uh, the narrator notes we do not know marshal timoshenko's thoughts we do not know whether he or any of these thousands of men throwing water over themselves understood that they were performing a symbolic ritual. This mass baptism, however, was a fateful moment for Russia. This mass baptism before the terrible battle for freedom on the high cliffs of the west bank of the Volga may have been as fateful a moment in the country's history as the mass baptism carried out in Kiev a thousand years earlier on the banks of the Dnieper. And further going on to say, should future historians wish to understand the turning point of this war, they need only come to this shore. They need only imagine a soldier sitting beneath this high cliff. They need only try, for a moment, to imagine the thoughts of this soldier as they look back at the at the cliff line behind the city and realizing that they will be fighting. <laughs> they will be moving all the way into the steppe at this point, having lost most uh, a great deal of, of the Western Soviet Union. That was a great scene. Great, great. Such a, it's such a, a cinematic scene, too. It does such a good job of, like I said, oscillating between... Uh, the baptism of the entire army, but then prompting you to imagine just the individual specific soldier. Yeah, that, and that is where this sort of complexity to capture all sorts of all, all forms of characters really where Grossman shines. And that's something I really want to talk about a little bit later on. Yeah, definitely. Especially in comparing um, a later um, departure from a family to the that of uh, Vavilov's and uh, the first part. Mm-hmm. So at this point we go from this large army perspective back into the family that we started with uh, and we rejoin Ludmila Nikolaevna, who I'll remind you is the eldest daughter of Alexandra, uh, the order going Ludmila, the oldest, Marussia, the middle, and then Zhenya, the youngest. So Ludmila, as a quick reminder, we'll go through a lot of family stuff because there's a lot of family members. And at this point, I've got like a pretty good map of them in my mind, but that's because I'm 200 pages in and I've been writing out family maps. Um, Ludmila is the mother of Tolia, who is a soldier, and the mother mother of Nadia, who is still uh, not in Stalingrad at this time. Uh, and she's married to Victor Strum, who is a physicist. I like that they do also get into a fight over how complex her family is as well. <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> that, I, I almost forgot to bring that up. Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that later like Mila and, and Victor will, will note that they had arguments about. I was like, great, finally some vindication for me, the reader. <laughs> Wait, it's the other way. It's Victor. Victor's family is really complex and Ludmilla can never remember. And she oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, And then Victor says, no, it's really simple. And he's like, uh, there's a long paragraph which says this is the uncle of this and then the uncle of that he is married to her and then she's the you know it goes on and then he's like it's very simple and she shakes her head Quite and simple, walks really. off <laughs> yeah um so uh, it's noted that uh, although Ludmila had studied for a doctorate in chemistry and was quite talented, uh, she ended up getting caught up in her life uh, after her second marriage of managing gardens and houses and her two children, and she never ended up finishing it. In the early days in school, she was actually, she got married as a first year to a man named Abarchuk, and Abarchuk is just a through and through uh, young communist student. He fought in the Civil War. He's completely upright, completely, he's sort of a, um, I don't know, I He's what's he's sort of a um, Rakhmetov type character almost, where he's completely upright, completely within the lines of who he, he feels he should be. 
Uh, he's completely against the, any form of, of bourgeois behavior, even treating almost like a, a physical virus. Uh, it's written that anyone of bourgeois origin inspired him a sense of physical disgust. If he happened in a narrow corridor to brush against a pretty, elegant girl student whom he, whom he suspected of being bourgeois, he instinctively shook his arm as if to remove any least trace of her from the sleeve of his military jacket. And let me just say, ladies love when you do that. <laughs> Well, Ludmilla apparently loved it for a, a time. For some reason, yeah. Yeah, so Alexandra was not super happy about this this marriage, but it, it does go through, and they're married from her first year to her third year. And it's like, okay, even though she is kind of a bourgeois background, Abarchuk overlooks it for the most part, until the birth of their son, Tolia. Um, at that point, Abarchuk, uh, uh, his, his, his belief is, okay, the, the Tolia, he'll be raised by like group, we'll be sending him to a home, uh, and then we'll continue on as students. And then Ludmila is like, no, I kind of want to, I want to, kind of want to keep him. And so she like starts knitting clothing for the kid and taking care of him. And Abarchuk just gets mad whenever he sees her like doting over the baby or cooking for him. And he's like, this is totally bourgeois. Can't be, I cannot allow it. Stop caring for your child. I will not have this. <laughs> um, and when Ludmila ends up leaving over the summer break to go stay with her family, Abarchuk writes her a letter and says, this isn't working out. Um, we, I, I can't be married to you. And when she comes back, he greets her like just like a comrade. He tries to shake her hand, and she, she's not super happy as you might imagine, and and ignores him. And then he also tries to get her purged later, so that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's fun. like a year later, he tries to get her excluded from university when they're going through a series of of, of purges from a not not leading to death in this case, but just excluding them from from being students. But thankfully for her, it doesn't go through. However. Uh, there are two students who are, uh, by this committee, excluded, although they're later brought back in based on the recommendations of teachers, uh, one of whom is Victor Strum, who, uh, through this process, Ludmilla ends up becoming acquainted with, uh, falling in love with, and, and then eventually marrying. We follow the sort of domestic life of Victor and Ludmilla, uh, as opposed to uh, Abarchuk, who is very upright, very in control of everything. Victor is... He's kind of sheltered. He was his mother raised him alone. She took him through the world to make sure that he was uh, getting educated. And uh, he, as a young boy, had kind of free reign. And he went off, and he was super in love with ponds and being outside and seeing the physical world and studying it. And his mother devoted her whole life to him. And even as a student, she is doting uh, to the extent of sending him multiple care packages per year. Every week, he writes her a letter. Even at the end of every week, asking. Ludmilla to write a couple sentences to his mother and Ludmilla gets really annoyed at this saying, I, you know, I don't even write to my own mother this much. Who am I married to? You or your mother. Uh, but it's also this characteristic which seems to attract Ludmilla to him because she, as opposed to being married to a Barchuk where she felt like a child all the time, she feels a bit more like uh, an adult compared to Victor. Which, well. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, look, yeah. We're, not, we're, not to, we're not here to talk about relationship uh, dynamics. We're here to... <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. Well, I mean, not relationship dynamics like i would talk to a friend of like maybe maybe that's not the best way to relate to your husband but they're fictional characters uh <laughs> so we, we follow victor through more of his his impetus for studying physics and his desire to sort of build this bridge between theoretical research uh, and make it relevant to the masses of workers in the soviet union and make it useful for them uh and find a way to make it worthwhile and it almost feels like even though he he feels a sense of rightness in what he does it's always a little bit, it's driven by this kind of almost sense of loss because he had a young friend many years ago who was also deeply in science who joined uh, the Red Army during the Civil War and ends up dying. And it's noted that 
um, he, Victor, wanted to build a bridge that would bring together his theoretical research and the difficult, noble labor of the country's millions of workers. He remembered his friend Lebedev, who was the one who was killed in the Civil War, wearing the helmet of a Red Army soldier and with a rifle on his shoulder. This memory burned him. So at this point, we uh, we come back into a little bit before the original events of this book, and um, Victor and Ludmila evacuate from Moscow to Kazan in the early days of the war. Um, but after some time, Victor and uh, a colleague of his, uh, Postayev, they're summoned back to the West in order to work on some projects. And we... We follow a little bit about their family dynamics, learn a little bit more about Victor's relationship to Tolia, which is always a little distant. They don't seem to understand each other. Uh, we learn about Nadia, who is sort of a sad, lonely girl who understands more about her parents than they seem to understand about themselves. Um, family conflicts over that. Um, and then finally, we come to Victor leaving, which is something I want to touch on more later. Um, and it's no, so we, we go into extended, actually, just like an exact detailing of what exactly is going to his pack, what, what, which, as you might imagine, Ludmilla is packing for him. Uh, and Victor is just kind of reminiscing about old times, about old times he had to flee elsewhere. Uh, and Ludmilla notes that she feels he, Victor, was too casual about her well-being and that he didn't appreciate all the trouble she went to over practical domestic matters. And uh, Victor and his colleague uh, Pastayev get on a train and start heading west, um, at all the time running into a lot of chaos and a, a scene of general disorder and people who have gotten lost and, and drunkards and all sorts of people in a, in a great moment of, of um, portrayal of, of life, of the difficulties of people trying to find cheaper prices, discussing where they can go and buy the goods they need, uh, the people who've been lost and the reaction of people who have something in contrast to people who they frankly don't know how to help. And that was where we end chapter 34, uh, which will be the end of part two of what we're reading for this episode. And that was a great summary. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so, okay. Wow, a, lo a lot happened. We are going deep in into these characters, into Ludmilla, Victor, and Novikov. It's so interesting how the timeline works on this, because I was thinking about this now that we're like 200 or so pages into it. Grossman just drops you into present day and leaves you to struggle and grasp who the heck is who for like 20 pages. And then they'll be like, okay, fine. Here's 80 pages of backstory. <laughs> Would that help you contextualize? I think so. Yeah, pretty much. Well, we'll start talking about a character. And then after, like for the case of Ludmilla, we learn much about her early life. And then we get to the part where it's like, oh, she got married to Victor. We talk more about her married life. And it's like, oh, well, let's go back and talk about Victor's childhood now too. Yeah, it is. Uh, that's why I was saying on part one is I feel like I really need to read this a second time. It already feels like one of those books because I'm going to have all this information that builds. Mm -hmm. But I have nothing like I need to go back and reread it with that in mind to kind of I feel like pick out more details that will become even more interesting on our second read through, which, you know, hey, maybe one day we'll do a second read through all the podcasts. Wouldn't that be a waste of time? <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It would be better. Yeah, I, you know, something I think about a lot is when we were covering Anna Karenina and you talked about the relationship between Anna and um, Steva, what you, what you said was that a lot of times in books, you're told that characters are siblings. And we accept that because, you know, okay, they're siblings. We've been told that by the narrative. But it's less common that you look at these characters and see the rhymes that you might see in siblings. Not necessarily, but like, okay, I, I see these common traits in you in, in the case of Anna and Steva and the different ways they take those common traits. Uh, but it's like really fascinating to see I think that that's also true of gross memories that got this great way of having characters who you feel their family connections and their common background and where there are divergences, 
why those divergences happen not least of all mm-hmm. for in like the case of all the sisters and like the characters of of their families of their husbands of their children of the life they lives they've lived and why that's taking them in such different directions but it feels tethered like outsiders yeah. to the family novikov feels like an outsider when you're reading him interacting with the family as opposed to like the relationship between for example uh Suryoja and uh, spiridonov who would have a much more familiar uh, although somewhat strained, as you might imagine, from father to child, uh, father being like a director of a factory and child being a headstrong young man who wants to go fight in a war. Yeah, the way he switches point of view is kind of interesting. And then he also, uh, yeah, so it's interesting because he really makes full use of like third person limited. But then when he kind of steps out to this grander narratorial style, he sometimes also limits himself. So you think he was going to step back and make a judgment, and then he's like, well, there's no way to know what he was thinking. I, I wouldn't know. No way anybody could know. Who's to say? Uh, which is <laughs> kind of fun. It, that is such an interesting point, isn't it? So much of this book is examining the psyches of these characters, but also there are characters who are outside the narrative. The soldiers, mm-hmm. they're outside the family narrative. The, obviously, General Timoshenko, they are the present and they're 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 there to be understood but only externally as if you are from the viewpoint of a member of the family almost right i guess novikov is also not a member of the family but tangentially related to the family yeah and so to go back slightly to what you're saying about families and their unique characteristics i think there's also an interesting thing where the kind of focus has started to shift a little bit to a couple of dichotomies that i see forming already in this part Mm-hmm. And there's, of course, on the military side, there's a sort of simple versus complex. There's stationary versus fluid uh, when they're talking about troops. Um, but then even kind of on the grandest level, there is, I don't know exactly what you would call it, but there is a sort of towards the end of where we were reading Mm. Uh, there's a, a very like talk about a grand narratorial style that breaks in kind of out of nowhere where Grossman's talking about people that get bogged down in the trivial nature of life compared to those who are aware of this unity that he says lies beneath them and he really kind of chastises the people who are don't have this sense of purpose based like this really overwhelming like blinding sense of purpose and he says that they can achieve small material successes, but they never win life's real battles, which is kind of interesting because to me, this is a pretty big condemnation of uh, well, Tolstoy, I guess, <laughs> maybe, where, yeah. I don't know, a lot of the end of Anna Karenina is, well, I don't know, maybe just get busy and do some housework and farm <laughs> and stuff, and that'll be good, and then you'll die, and that's okay. Right. And so, yeah, it's kind of these things that are starting to kind of starting to emerge, and so not only are there similarities to wrap it back to where I was originally going down this long windy road of thoughts, uh, not only are there similarities between families, there's just this kind of these general similarities, very broad strokes of what it means to even be human. I think he's starting to sort of Mm. paint. Uh, and I, I think it's good. I like it. I'm a fan. Yeah. Actually, I want to build on that point about that sort of rebuke for a second. Uh, because I, when I was, uh, that's interesting that you bring it up. <laughs> thank Enjoy. you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you read that as a, as a rebuke of Tolstoy, which I think is, is apt. Uh, when I was looking at that, I almost wondered if that was a sort of, sort of, you know, looking back on 
Grossman's own past, a sort of reflection on his own troubled relationship to the Soviet state, as you might imagine. So that particular that particular line is from a chapter which I, I, I skipped over, actually. It's talking about a man named Dmitry Petrovich uh, Chaputian, who was a teacher of uh, Dmit- uh, Victor Strums and was quite an influential one. And Chaputian is kind of noted, it's almost like a titan among his fellow faculty members back at the college when, when Strum was a student. Uh, he's, whereas everyone else is kind of old and varicose and, and you know, almost like decrepit. He's the same age, but he loves being out in nature. He hikes around. He's tan. Uh, he looks strong. He looks wind, you know, wind beaten. Um, and there's a long, like three pages maybe of talking about uh, the reason why he did what he did, which was not just for the love of science, but for the love of land, for the love of trees, for the love of people, for the love of like the birds and the squirrels, uh, for the love of just seeing something grow. And after all that very careful, loving description of a man who just seems to be completely in love with the land around him, then we come to, but he didn't have a concrete ideological view of the world. He just simply liked things. And without that ideological view, you can't get anything done. And we'll be in the last days of men like this who they realize, oh my God, my God, I have really achieved nothing because I Mm -hmm. was just in too many directions and I did not know how to direct my energies into, you know, an ideological direction. And so obviously I don't know Grossman's thoughts, but for a man who was so engrossed in sciences, uh, you know, growing up and was forced into a lot of awkward positions by the circumstances of his life, I don't know. It almost... I, I can't read that without thinking of his own personal circumstances, whether or not that may that may not be the case, right? I've got no actual insight into that, into mm-hmm. his own thoughts, obviously. Yeah, I, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, and then at the end of that chapter, when him and Grimov are debating a little bit, he says, you have mm-hmm. to think a little bit more about how people with such a weak grasp of the theory of knowledge can be so very strong when it comes to actual knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of setting up, I, I think, what seems to be a... Yeah, so kind of like you're saying, it's it's sort of a dichotomy, but it's a little bit more nuanced, I think. And I don't exactly know what to make of it. I think as we go more, we'll, there will be more development of that. Uh, like, yeah, like you mentioned, Krimov, who is, of course, Zhenya's uh, first husband. Um, he <laughs> pops up twice in this part, and both times to provide a reprimand to Victor about people in his life. The first time, uh, Victor, who's a little bit insecure about Abarchuk, when he's kind of making fun of Abarchuk for being so straight-laced, Krimov says, well, keep in mind that that was a man who fought and sacrificed and bled in the Civil War, uh, whereas, what, I mean, what were you doing? And then later on it appears again when Victor is uh, praising uh, Chapuzian and kind of says, well, like what you said, he <laughs> doesn't have a particular direction. Did we mention Abarchuk was purged? Oh, no, we didn't. I was thinking about that, though. Well, that would be good. Co- that's good context to know. Yeah. He was purged. Yes, he would later go on to be purged, which I th- was slightly before the war, after becoming a manager of factory yeah he is Mm -hmm. um actually several characters are not just like you know students excluded from the faculty like in the earlier setting but you know arrested and disappeared yeah no much much worse than being like excluded and then reinstated into the university yeah 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 but yeah so it's interesting so you have a slight criticism of people who are not ideological but then you have people who are overly ideological and the interesting part being, of course, that is not rewarded by the state. Actually, <laughs> quite, 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 quite the opposite. And then I, I'm pretty sure Ludmila's mom also criticizes him for that, saying something along the lines of people like this have a hard time of reconciling their love for humanity with their love for an individual. And so it's a really complex way that he's trying to work out all of these feelings, I find. 
right of that that sense of respect almost for like the heroism of fighting in, in the in the civil war which is kind of given to Abarchuk by Krimov, but I would say is much more strongly given to Lebedev, uh, the friend of Victor's, who is like the, the memory of whom uh, him being a young scientist, but then before going off and dying in the war, uh, being that memory that burns him and drives him onward to try to connect his work as a scientist to the work of the laborer. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind if we, we go back to family for a second? Because I want to talk about a comparison to part one. Sure. So when Victor's leaving... Ludmilla is packing his bags for him and we go through I would say actually maybe two paragraphs of exact detail like the exact number of onions the medicines she packs for him the clothing Mm -hmm. uh, and her like explaining to him how to you know almost as if he's a child which frankly given that he's just reminiscing about other times he's had to travel seems pretty justified but that contrast against uh, Vavilov leaving his family in part one where they're it's a very solemn there's a heaviness over all of them which at least not least of all because Vavilov is being called up to the front to fight and Victor's just being called to, to work so obviously mm-hmm. those circumstances are different but like the way in which I like I, I love the characterization of not only these individuals and their relationships but the families as a whole in their relationship of you know both in, in, like as a, as a as an overlap both of the their Ludmila is is annoyed at Victor and uh, unfortunately I forget uh, Vavilov's wife's name Vavilov, uh, Vavilovna um she's annoyed at her husband but that's really just to cover for the fact that she's worried about her own future mm-hmm. and, and she like in their deep care for each other just it, it's kind of it's very restrained it's not very open they're they've lived a hard life they're really they got married because they had to be because they're partners and that's how they view each other but that also comes with the care of well that's kind of my other half for better or for worse and then you get to mm-hmm. victor and ludmila and ludmila being like stop acting like a child <laughs> um, but at the same time, and like her, and of course she was trained in chemistry and you kind of see that like scientific mind almost being reflected in the text being exact and the, the, even the number of onions. Whereas in like Vavilov leaving, it's like, oh, what do you want? Uh, take the mittens and him saying, no, no, you take the mittens and quietly reflecting the fact that it would be wasted on him. Um, it's such a similar scene, but so it characterizes the families and the individuals so well. And uh, that's just, it's just a remarkable piece of, uh, of character building in both in both senses, both in the way they're portrayed, in the way the writing comes out. I I, I just love it. You know what's not, not a complex thought, but what I found hilarious? Sure. When Ludmilla signs Nadia up to work at the Calhoz, uh <laughs> for the entire summer, and yeah. then she throws a fit and says, no, then I have to go work all summer, and <laughs> it's not comfortable, and it's a lot of hard work, and then I have to go right back to school. <laughs> 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 and mom signed me up without even asking. <laughs> And then Victor goes to Ludmilla is like, you really don't have to. She's already so like, she's already such a thin child. You don't need to make her work anymore. <laughs> and Ludmilla is like, well, I was smaller than her when I was her age. She can stand a little hard labor. It was, that was a great scene. It was pretty funny. I kind of started to see though, as well, the familial general similarity where mm-hmm. it's not just, so I guess, so I guess 19th century you have, you have fathers and sons and now we have uh, mothers and sons here. Uh, not necessarily conflict, but so when Ludmila is kind of what Victor thinks is coddling her son Tolia, he reprimands Ludmila saying, you know, I was never coddled like that. And then the narrator breaks in to go, except he was coddled exactly like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he just doesn't think he was. Um, and so there's kind of this like general uh, description of what is in, what is ordinary Mm-hmm. in family life and then you have this feeling that a lot of people have 
uh, about what is extraordinary. And so it's noted several times that Lumila feels like her love for Tolia is extraordinary and nothing can compare to it. And then she talks to her mother about uh, whether it's her first husband or son or whatever it is. And her mother's like, yeah, no, everybody, you know, everybody has that. And the narrator notes that in a, in a lot of these cases that he describes the individuals who feel that they're doing something extraordinary, actually what they're doing is incredibly ordinary. And that's not to denigrate what they're doing, but I think it's actually to show that within everybody, everybody actually has this potential to do something extraordinary. And so that's what I really think the defense of Stalingrad is about. But it's not just about the defense of Stalingrad, it's also about life. Because whether you're in war, actually on the front line or not, you still have this propensity to do something that is extraordinary. And I think that's a really optimistic message. Yeah. You think about that, huh? Did you? I, yeah, I, I didn't think, <laughs> I, I think that that's an interesting point. Of, uh, I like the sort of the, the almost heroic element too. I would say also just like also focusing in the ordinary element of like where he's uh, of Grossman is writing a book about the siege of Stalingrad, which he notes is the changing point of the war, the changing point of the history of the Soviet Union. And he dedicates a whole page to an argument between a husband and a wife over uh, Ludmila citing their daughter up for a work camp over the summer, over so like a summer camp she doesn't want to go to. It's yeah. a very ordinary scene. Well, let's not say summer camp. Let's say summer labor camp. <laughs> summer camp sounds fun. I don't know how much fun it would have been. Any of our <laughs> listeners got to participate, let us know. <laughs> um, yeah, but just to your point about the the ordinariness of all of it at the same time, and there's like the ordinary hero. There, I guess the ordinary ordinary dash heroic elements and then there's just the ordinary dash ordinary elements of this which mm -hmm. i think bringing this all together is such a is why this feels so i mean despite the fact that when you're reading this you can like tell that like this is supposed to be a, a piece of literature which is uplifting to the reader of like yeah this feels like i love this play i love this land i love the soviet union i love the red army uh which also coexists alongside really true uh and authentic feeling and very touching feelings of touching examinations of family especially mm -hmm. during in this case wartime mm-hmm Sorry, I have more quotes to talk about. I was just flipping through and yeah, trying please. to find them. Yeah, go for it. We only talked about, we've only analyzed like 10 pages, so. I, oh, yeah, there's so, there is, I, okay, so this took, this took, this was only 100 pages, but this took me so long to read because every other page, I was like, I have a whole paragraph. I would just like copy down a whole paragraph from the book into this because, God, it's this like, this, I just love this prose. I know we say that a lot and it's only been two episodes and you're going to be really tired of us hearing that, but it's just such such engaging prose i'm going to sell it on a shirt with a caricature of cameron that said says god i love grossman's prose <laughs> dude i was i was i was at a bookstore the other day and i saw i was like telling myself like i'm not it's when it was like, i'm not going to spend a bunch of money here and then i saw they had an entire section of almost everything grossman's ever written and i really took all of my self-will yeah well, of course you're going to say that before you go in because no bookstore carries everything by Grossman. Yeah, no, Usually. I walked in. It was, it was City Lights in San Francisco. I walked in. They had, they had Life and Fate, Stalingrad, Everything Flows, uh, collections of his short stories. Done. Purchased. Bank account? Destroyed. Shattered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was... Oh, God. They, there was... Uh, if you're ever in San Francisco, I'd recommend City There's a bunch of stuff which I was like, I kind of want to bring this on the podcast. There's one which was... Maybe you've heard of it. It's called... Um, was it a, a man with cocaine or something, which was written by uh, a, a Russian emigre author to the to Paris like, shortly after the uh, the creation of the Soviet Union, written under a pseudonym about a man wandering through Paris being addicted to cocaine. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's read it. Uh, just, yeah. Anyway, right now. 
all kinds of weird up like all kinds of weird stuff in that story of his uh and uh when i saw the grossman stuff it just took so much self-will not to buy all of it yeah absolutely one thing i just a brief notice i want to mention so when i was doing research for this i just i, I was on jstor and like i said i've been reading a bunch of other stuff and one of the things which i will i, I will I, I think i mentioned last time and i'll bring it back in again this this um uh, this paper called brutal games call of duty and the cultural narratives of world war ii and you may wonder mm-hmm. what does that have to do with this uh but one of the th- things that the author deborah ramsey notes is that um that the kind of way that we portray war in video games and sometimes media is is has a huge amount of erasure of civilians in it uh and ramsey writes given that civilian casualties in world war ii far outweighed the military casualties on all sides the gradual erasure of civilians from spaces of war is perhaps one of the most critical absences in the visual construction of world war ii mm. and it reaches the apotheosis of in the fps in world at war which is the fifth call of duty game these spaces of war are entirely devoid of civilians, and the damage of war is evident only in the environment or on the bodies of soldiers. Although the game claims to reveal the more brutal aspects of World War II, the game limits this exposure to combatants and ignores the civilian face of suffering. 95,000 civilians died on Okinawa. However, the only death to register with any significance in the Okinawan campaign in the game is that of the player's mentor, Roebuck, or his squadmate, Polanski. That's something that Grossman absolutely does not shy away from. One of the major features of Novikov describing the first day in the early days of uh, Operation Barbarossa, the, the Wehrmacht's invasion of the Soviet Union, is the masses of refugees who are uncertain, who call out to him and ask him what's going on, and he looks at them and genuinely doesn't know what to say. And even the things that he believes are, I mean, as the author, the narrator notes are wrong. And also, as a side point, this book has such like such a wonderful dry humor uh, where Novikov, even as he's retreating, he's trying to make things make sense in his own mind. And the only way he can make sense of it is to think about reports he wants to write. And the reports he wants to write are uh, on when he when he hears battalions fighting back, he wants to say, well, from what I hear, battalions which got in contact with their command centers and received orders did better than battalions. Uh, who did not receive orders, um, and I want to write a report on how it's really important that we maintain lines of um, lines of communication because that's the difference between uh, beating back the Germans and losing entire battalions. And then the narrator breaks in to say, "Well, of course that wasn't quite true, even though he would go on to write that report. Uh, in fact, it was the case that uh, the ones who got in contact with their with the leadership had already survived, and in fact, no one had received orders because orders are only effective when you have time to analyze things and know the situation. And in this situation, no one knew what was going on, so the men who were giving orders had no more idea than the men carrying them out. In fact, the men who simply acted rather than waiting were the ones who successfully beat back the Wehrmacht and were able to get in contact rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he describes the war very often as having a logic of its own, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting way to view war. I mean, maybe not. Maybe it's general. It seems to be just in very stark contrast to the way that somebody who is professionally in charge of any aspect of military operations would probably like to see a war, which is to say that they have some control over it. And this whole book is essentially about how not really you're you're kind of beholden to those ordinary dash ordinary things <laughs> uh, on everyday life mm-hmm. that can cause things to you know spiral out of control uh, that there's no way that it's possible to have command over. I mean, they're trying to even just look at like where are where is our army and they're like, I don't really know. 
So (laughs) to think that they would have some sort of control over anything uh, on a micro level, like beneath that is, of course, not really possible. Yeah, I mean, that's something that Novikov is struggling with all the time because people come to him because he's the one he's the one who's best at separating the wheat from the chaff of getting all these intelligence reports. And he kind of there's actually this great ceremony talks about all the different sources of intelligence scouts um, and you know, uh, various other sorts of people who bring in information as well as the Air Force. He says, well, he really prefers the Air Force because they're the ones who can get you the most active idea of battle lines. So, uh, and then he kind of talks to his method for creating those most active lines, which is why even though his superior officer, Bichoff, appears to really not like him, is why Bichoff is always blocking his transfer to other staff or becoming a frontline commander like Novikov would like to be uh, because he's seen as essential, if not entirely respected for that. Um, and just the, the intra-office politics too of like Bikov trying to get rid of officers mm-hmm. he doesn't like and Novikov trying to stand up for them and he's kind of in a protected position because even though Bikov obviously does not like him really understands that he needs Novikov um, and every step of the book has a, you know, at least when we're not zooming out for that kind of bird's eye view of like the general view of the army bathing the in the Volga of like really great granular view of life again getting back to that ordinary dash ordinary view of even in times of of, of war you can't get rid of office politics of a superior officer being like, oh, this guy's annoying me. Uh, he's going to go back into rear line duty. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about, very last thing, probably. There are just some weird conversations in this part. Sure. Or weird thoughts, just random thoughts. And there was this just really striking passage that I liked where Novikov was kind of wandering around before kind of the night before the attack. And... He's just kind of just kind of looking at the sky and the way it looks. And he's saying he says that at times like this we cease to have distinct perceptions of light, space, silence, rustlings, warmth, sweet smells, the swaying of long grass or leaves, all the millions of ingredients that make up the world's beauty. What we perceive then is true beauty, and it tells us only one thing, that life is a blessing. And that was such an interesting quote for a book that is about that d- dives into the millions of ingredients that make up the world beauty the world's beauty or at least attempts to dive into a few of those it's very interesting i think as a sort of Hmm. perception into or in i don't know what you would call it It's, it's an interesting look i guess into grossman's thoughts on beauty art and life i guess kind of the i think what i guess like probably the point of the book then right is to perceive some sort of beauty in, in this way that doesn't it, it kind of as as a whole when you're finished it is to perceive some sort of beauty this is my guess it's not to perceive all of these things as distinct individual perceptions but on the whole and so this is how he creates art and also at the same time it's kind of a very totalizing view of existence as well i don't know it's interesting it's not a worked out thought i just it's something i'm thinking about that's fair. That's something I'm sure we'll be developing as we go, because these these threads are not left alone. No, yeah, and we have so, so, so much more to read. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, I'll look at this book and think, what can we possibly talk about when we sit down for another 100 pages? But then, at least so far, every time I sit down, I'm like, oh my god, there's too much to talk about in only an hour. I know. That wasn't even all the quotes I had. That was like uh, half. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But that's all I want to talk about for now. Those are my most developed thoughts. A lot of a lot of half-grown ones, which we will address when the time is right, when the narrator brings us to a more complete place of, of understanding, I think. 
Absolutely. And I want to encourage any of the readers that are reading along with us, shoot us an email. Let us know what you're thinking. And uh, if we like your email, we'll read it on the end of the podcast and uh, mm-hmm. give you a little answer. Yep. Or you can tell us something funny. Or you can tell us something funny and I'll read that too. And uh, it doesn't have to be about Stalingrad. Okay. As loath as I am to leave it here. Matt, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, where are you? Where are you at 1, 1 p.m. your time? Six. Not quite over the threshold, but I'm sure. farther along than you should be for 1 p.m. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. How did you end up uh, at 11 a.m. your time? <laughs> you know, I was—I think at my peak, I was a five directly after I finished it, but it's been, it's been about 20 minutes since I finished off my martini, so I've come back down to like a, a four, I think. So probably, I'm going to say reasonable for 11 a.m. Well, as reasonable as it can be for rating yourself on a scale of drunkenness at 11 a.m., when I have other things to do today. <laughs> yeah, the weekday really throws it off, I think. Yeah, but this is it's weird to record on a weekday. This is different. It is different. That's what we get for procrastinating. <laughs> um, oh, such is life. Such is life and fate. <laughs> such is life. <laughs> Before we let you go, I wanted to extend a sincere thank you, me personally, not from Cameron, just for me, to all of our <laughs> current patrons that are supporting the show. As you know, uh, nothing pays well anymore or ever. Podcasting, grad school, it's all a wash. The, o- <laughs> the only income I have now is from <laughs> our patrons, who I am thanking again for me, not from Cameron. We have. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, Madeline, and Janice, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Irene, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious, Donor Dude, Joanne, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, Julie, Eli, Caitlin, Brett, Isaac, Austin, Zachary, Pacrob, Maya, Sharon, Blake, and Haley. Without all of our patrons, what would we do? <laughs> yeah, what you all don't realize is that at the beginning of this podcast, I pledged to match every patron because I didn't expect us to earn any money, and Matt needs it because he goes to grad school. I'm milking Cameron dry, it's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so every new patron means that I, my, my paycheck goes smaller and smaller. Cameron's working seven jobs. Soon 100% of my paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Soon 100% of my paycheck is just going to be funding uh, Matt's uh, um, video game addiction. <laughs> No, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Actually, no. Take that back. It's not gonna fund. It's gonna fund your addiction to hobbies. Yeah, that's more like it. Yeah, every week it'll be like, what am I funding this week? Mm. Microgreens. Microgreens. Yeah. Furniture restoration. <laughs> Beekeeping. Well, I still. Have... <laughs> Is this funny? It's a good bit. Well, before I, well, I still have money before the repo people take my microphone <laughs> away from me. Uh, <laughs> the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also under YouTube on YouTube under the same username. If you were looking for it, also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.